Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at QuietMark. And QuietMark is the independent global certification programme associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials and commercial sector products. One of the most popular and highly visited categories on QuietMark.com is refrigeration. And one of the best known names in that category is Liebherr, whose refrigerators and freezers offer modern design, outstanding technical performance, innovative technology and superb energy efficiency. In developing its refrigerators and freezers, Lieber pays attention to customer needs so that appliances are convenient to use and make everyday life easier. And one of the people whose everyday life is being made easier by Lieber is our guest on today's show, Dan Belmont, wine buyer and proprietor at Good Wine, Good People. Dan has spent hundreds of classroom hours thrilling guests with wine and cheese education on both sides of the Atlantic. From the restaurant floor to festivals, television and radio, Dan shares his passion and curiosity for the world of wine and aims to inspire his guests to start their own lifelong journey of wine appreciation. He's a certified American wine expert and holds the Level 3 certification in wines and spirits from the WSET. Dan currently lives in London with his wife, where he is the wine ambassador for Libe UK. His decade plus of experience is the engine behind his latest work, Good Wine, Good People, who are now shipping personalised mixed cases UK-wide. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks for having me, Simon. Appreciate it. You're very, very welcome. Uh, I know we've done a rehearsal call yesterday, so I got to know you in, uh, a bit more in person. And I know that the listeners have got a real treat today. I've enjoyed uh, sharing that introduction with the listeners, but it's never better than hearing it from the man himself. So you tell us who you are, what it is you do with good wine, good people. Cool. So uh, I'm Dan Belmont. I am a born and raised New Yorker uh, turned American expat. I've been based now in London for the last six years. Uh, I'm a certified American wine expert and I hold certifications with the Wine and Spirits Trust. Uh, I'm the wine ambassador for Libra UK and I support a variety of international trade associations and producers as a presenter, educator, and judge. Uh, in 2020, I launched the wine e-commerce website, Good Wine, Good People, uh, which I own and operate. We serve the whole of the UK. That sounds fantastic. And uh, on the subject of your website, of course, one of the first things you see is a YouTube video. And it's, it really caught my eye because in that YouTube video, uh, you immediately start by saying, and I'm going to quote it, I believe that wine is personal. The part of your brain that processes flavor is closely related to the part that manages memory. I love the connection to the senses, which is what this show is all about, Dan. So tell us, What's your earliest memory of wine and how did you get started on the path to what you're doing today, which has led to you becoming, as the headline on your website succinctly describes you, a wine and cheese raconteur? Hmm. You know, here's the thing. If you smell a wine and it reminds you of your grandmother's perfume and you adore your grandmother, you may very well enjoy that wine more. Now, on the other side, if you smell a red wine and it reminds you of Uncle Johnny's cigar box, but 
Uncle Johnny was a creeper, you <laughs> might not enjoy that wine. And so, you know, memory and emotion, who you're with, the weather, you know, um, think about that, that very inexpensive wine that you drink uh, on holiday and then you buy it and you drink it at home on a Tuesday night when it's a gray, uh, rainy London day. You're not going to enjoy it as much. You're not on holiday anymore. It's as simple as that. And so, um, you know, with that said, my, my early wine memories are our family based. Uh, we are a big card playing family, um, poker, rummy style games, all things like that. And nice. so, um, you know, I have early memories, uh, not, not too early, mind you, but early memories of, of playing uh, cards and, and drinking uh, very inexpensive uh, jugged red Italian wines uh, <laughs> and having a grand old time. You know, um, as an American, you are not legally allowed to drink until you're 21. Um, I, I will say that these memories predate that and, <laughs> well, and they predate being 18 as well, but, um, you know, all, all within um, the comfort and the safety of, of being surrounded by family and, and really having fun. And so... You know, uh, from there, um, later in life, I visited a wine region in upstate New York. Uh, yes, they make they grow uh, grapes and make wine in New York State, uh, and this is the Finger Lakes. And so you're about five hours north of New York City. And on that visit, I was visiting a winery. I met the winemaker. I was tasting the wine. I was looking out the window. I was seeing the grapes that are growing uh, alongside these uh, famously long, deep lakes and tasting the the kind of final result in the glass and and smelling the air and and seeing the dirt and it all just kind of came together in a very holistic way for me uh and i left that trip um with the intention of of pivoting my career into wine and so um you know that visit was in the middle of a stint in the nyc restaurant scene i was working with be our guest hospitality Mm -hmm. Uh, my passion for wine led me to the world of cheese uh, and so i led the education department for nyc's uh, famed or infamous murray's cheese which is now one of the largest artisan cheese retailers in the united states and then then i moved to london and i flipped the script and so i went from being the wine guy to cheese company to being the cheese guy to wine company (laughs) uh, with with beedales of borough and that's a trio of wine bars uh, based in london's historic historic markets, namely Borough Market. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, really education has been the through line of my career. Um, And, and, you know, then like many of us, the pandemic was really the spark for a career pivot, which led to the creation of goodwinegoodpeople.com. And so, you know, there the ethos is wine is personal drink accordingly you know and so we boast a portfolio of about 350 individual wines that you could sort filter and search Uh, but if you need a bit of hand-holding you know our flagship experience is what we call the personal SOM questionnaire Mm-hmm. And there you can choose your pack size, choose the average price per bottle you'd like to spend. And then you tell me a bit about yourself. You, um, you know, answer a short questionnaire that we developed. There's, there's no wine knowledge needed. It's more like, how do you take your coffee? When do you drink your wine? Are you at the dinner table? Or are you watching Netflix? Things like that. Um, and, you know, from there, I, I take the information that you give me and I, I make some educated guesses. Very, very similar to how a, a sommelier at a restaurant would have a quick conversation with you and then make recommendations. But I'll personally choose your wine wines and send them along with personal tasting notes. And so, you know, we say that we pair wines for any meal, moment, or mood. And that's where the site started and it remains our most popular service today. What a fantastic service. In the introduction, of course, I said, 
well, what we have in common and the reason you're on this show and thanks for the time again is uh, our connection with Liebherr. Quietmark certifies many of their products, their wine cabinets, their refrigerators. And of course, you're an ambassador for Liebherr. So how did that come about and what does it do for you? Did they put any funky toys in your kitchen? <laughs> so I met uh, the UK sales director whose name is Tim uh, and he's a good friend now. Uh, he came into the wine bar at Borough Market and um, he, I've learned... Uh, once a year goes out with one of his old school buddies uh, and they have a bit of a hedonistic day Uh, I do not believe that B-Dales was the first stop on their tour that day nor was it the last Uh, but uh, he basically asked you know can you give us a little hand holding and and take us through some wines as we enjoy some of the food and and, you know it wasn't really my gig at the time I just happened to be on the floor and 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 so I spent some time with them and and you know once you get me going it's it's hard to get me to stop and so uh, I shared a lot of wine with him and at the um end of the conversation he's like oh well you know have you heard of Lieber and I said you know that name sounds really familiar and and I've later realized it's because uh the Lieber family sponsors uh the world tennis championships uh and so I'm a big table tennis guy I'm not very good but I, I enjoy it um and so I remember seeing that and and you know as we said it's also uh they they produce construction equipment so look at your your nearby crane and you There's might one see one at the Lieber. end of my road that is massive <laughs> the big the old, big old concrete blocks have all got embossed in the concrete Lieber so yeah they're everywhere so it's big, but it is a family-owned organization, and and you know if you trust them to make uh, a massive construction equipment that's that's lifting concrete blocks, you know, over the heads of of, of <laughs> Londoners, you know, and people across the world, you could probably trust them to to make a, a home appliance. And one of the things that always intrigued me about about their range is you know they make refrigerators, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really try to differentiate their wine range from that so we actually we call them wine cabinets as opposed to to wine refrigerators because they started from scratch they didn't take their refrigerator and put a glass door on it it's a little more complicated than that and so um they're they're beautiful units and and of course he says he says you know how do you store your wine do you have a a wine cabinet and i said well no i have a, a small you know uh sad rack in the corner of my living room uh and uh, it's, a, it's a modest collection. And he says, well, would you like one? And I was like, well, I've given this guy too much wine, no doubt about it. <laughs> um, but we exchanged information. And, and lo and behold, within, I think, a day, he got back to me and said, so here's the range. Which, which one do you want? And I, well, I said, this is, this is crazy. But I was like, well, listen, if you're going to go through the trouble of, of giving me one and delivering it to my home, like, you might as well give me the biggest and the best one. <laughs> I like and, and so, style. yeah, and so I have um, a three temperature zone. Uh, gosh, monolith, really. I mean, it's it's gorgeous. Uh, it is a, a vinador wine cabinet. It's got a capacity of 186 bottles, and oh my and goodness. whenever you read the the bottle capacity on a on a wine cabinet, whether it's Lieber or otherwise, they're always talking about Bordeaux bottles, and Bordeaux bottles are very friendly from a, a space perspective, and so you throw a bottle of champagne in there, and it might cut your capacity in half, and so that's just a just fair warning. Um, as soon as you get to more unique bottle shapes, but uh, it is a, it is an amazing cabinet, and um, you know it's now followed me to three different London homes. Um, much to my my dismay, it is it is quite large. Uh, much to much to my wife's dismay, honestly. But um, you know, it fits well and it fits well everywhere. And I think you know, now that good wine, good people, we are an official partner of of Lieber and and specifically for their their wine cabinets. You know, I say that whether it's you know 
in the home, on the restaurant floor, in your kitchen. It's a, it's a showpiece. And so, you know, I am sitting next to it right now, which, uh, you know, we don't hear it, which is great. Uh, I've had it next to my television, right? And I've had it in very small flats. And so um, I looked it up for, for our conversation. I mean, the noise output is only 35 decibels, and that's um, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's It's been a great relationship. I, I do a lot for uh, their blog, uh, content creation for social media. We partner on giveaways, uh, things like that. And it's it's been um, really just a, a, a great partnership. Well, we know it's worthy of the quiet mark, but it's great to hear that you're saying it is too. That's great. I read a really interesting report the other day by Pascal Van Dort, who's at Rockfon, whose products we certify. It's called Noise Impacts the Taste of Your Coffee. On this, he says uh, that researchers from Unilever and at the University of Manchester found evidence that when eating in the presence of loud compared to quiet background noise, the taste of food changes. It even said that the food's saltiness, sweetness, and even their liking diminished when the food was eaten under noise conditions of 75 to 85 decibels. So we're talking like a vacuum cleaner or a loud coffee machine in a cafe sort of noise. So I just want to check with you, can you relate to that? And do you think it applies to wine and cheese? Absolutely, I mean, you know, I believe truly that the enjoyment of wine is personal memory and emotion do have a profound effect and we know how much sound can affect emotion uh, whether it is the annoyance of a vacuum cleaner you know um, how hard is it to focus and you know in tasting uh, anything but but particularly the complexities of wine is it's not easy it's not mindless you are you're you know really trying to connect the information that we're receiving uh, from our taste buds sweet sour bitter salty savory and our nose uh, which is tens of thousands Thousands of unique, or you know, uh, kind of smell receptors giving us context for all that. It's not just sweet; it's a sweet raspberry. It's not just salty; it is, you know, sea salt or fresh sea air or something like that. And so, you know, if the tone of a room is is flat, I, I believe that your your wine will taste flat. Um, an example: I was on a recent uh, wine trade trip to Austria, and the small group that I was a part of, we were tasting uh, in a silent room, and, and we didn't really know each other all too well. We had just met earlier that morning. We were dragging a bit after our flights uh, over there and and so I, I proposed some tunes uh, and yeah. and uh, it was a um, gosh it was a classic rock uh, Spotify station and it did the trick everybody perked up you know we started in, in engaging with each other more right and think about that from a hospitality or a restaurant perspective you're gonna have um, you know more more conversation and, and you know for me wine is is best when it's shared mm -hmm. right and so mm -hmm. now that we can share this experience um, you know we can we can also um, you get more comfortable identifying what you're experiencing in the glass and it, it really set the tone you know the pun intended for the rest of the trip oh that sounds great and it's interesting you say that because you're talked earlier about your history coming from starting in new york uh, this might interest you the last guest on the show was a guy called gregory scott who's created an app called soundprint and you can use it to measure the sound in restaurants to, and then you can save that and let other people know whether that restaurant is a quiet loud or really loud space um, but you can also look at restaurants before you go out and see if there's a sound print, uh, has a sound check has been done there. So before you can go, you can look it up on the app and see how it measures before you go to see if it's conducive to good conversation or concentration. Anyway, he did a, some sort of survey and he discovered 
that the loudest restaurants in the world are in San Francisco and the second loudest is in London. And uh, I, I'd imagine New York rates high on that. And do you think that um, restaurants do that deliberately? Do they not even consider how loud the, the, the music is in their spaces? What's going on there? I uh, know that that the smart restaurateurs and the best restaurants are absolutely considering uh, what their their audio environment is let's call it whether it is um you know music what kind of music it is the 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 volume of the music um it's hugely hugely important and again you know if you walk into a, a an empty restaurant it just doesn't feel right you know no. and, and it feels flat and your food's going to feel flat and your conversation's going to be flat and so you know um as I look to develop a brick and mortar site for, for good wine, good people, it's something that I'm going to spend a lot of, I expect to spend a lot of time on because we aim to create a space that promotes the love of wine. And I don't have the answer to that just yet, but I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's going to be really important. And so, you know, when I was with Be Our Guest Hospitality in New York City, the owner there was Stephen Hansen, uh, a notorious restaurateur for his, his formulaic operation of these restaurants. And um, it he made for a very stressed out staff, but, um, <laughs> you know, he'd, he'd walk in and can immediately assess if the music is too loud or not loud enough, you know, and if someone had tweaked the setting that it's supposed to be at you know and it's different settings for different times of day and different crowds and and it wasn't blanket across all of his restaurants either it was different for the neighborhood because you know these new york city neighborhoods operated differently the people operate differently and so you know the mood lighting the timing of service it all was you know designed to create a space that people would want to return to you know he wasn't he wasn't churning out the greatest food in New York City, but he was creating places that that guests just want to go back to over and over again, and he had the data to prove it. You know, on the flip side, you have Danny Meyer, who was with Union Square Hospitality Group, um, and he took a more, you know, another famously more people-driven approach mm -hmm. where his team came first, and I, I kind of wish I got to work for both, and I, unfortunately, <laughs> I, I didn't, but, um, you know, uh, it, it's just a, a different way to go about it. He was saying that if his team was happy, and his team, you know, had what he called the, the hospitality quotient, you know, um, whether, you know, a combination of optimism and just shared values that that you're going to immediately create an environment that people want to return to. And they were both uh, quite and are quite successful in their own right. And so, um, yeah, I think um, I think that that environment is is paramount to the experience and sound is a huge part of it i think i think sound is is probably the most overt sense that we have you know if 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 you walk past a you know or, or here's this the the tube in london the i was on the central line and it goes around a curve and you cannot hear or think you can't think you, you your brain shuts down because it gets so loud and so you know with that in mind i i don't you know i, I don't go to uh heavy metal rock concerts it's it's just too loud you know sure. that's not the kind of music that i gravitate towards you know um, my university degree is in music theater performance and so for me if i if i don't understand the lyrics or i can't sing along i'm i'm largely not interested <laughs> and so um you know it's uh yeah it's it's going to be different for everybody obviously and i actually think that that you know that that ranking system from from soundprint uh is actually really smart and i think more people should pay attention to it just because uh if you 
go to the, a restaurant and the the vibe, that sound vibe isn't right, you're not going to have a great experience. So I need to know, Dan, to see the chef with the open kitchen or to have the chef behind a closed kitchen wall, which way are we going here? Well, I, I, I love an open plan kitchen. I think that... Um, you're pulling back the curtain, and I think that's a, a great kind of a more recent development in restaurants over the last, let's say, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Um, and for me, I love that energy, right? I love the sound of, of fire. I love the sound of pans clanking. I love, you know, um, the 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 rapport of a chef of a kitchen team, you know, and, and you have, again, chefs on both sides of the aisle that run a very quiet, calm kitchen. And then mm-hmm. you have chefs that run uh, a very loud and frantic <laughs> kitchen. And, and again, it depends on what, what side you, you want to be on. But um, for me, I think that's, that's an incredible uh, amount of energy and, and sound energy that that brings to a space uh, and can be really, really effective. Talking about um, wine cabinets that hold 180 bottles, I'm a novice. Do you chill red wine? I do chill red wine, yeah. Uh, I tend to chill everything a bit more than would be generally prescribed. Uh, And I'll I'll look over. I have uh, my uh, coldest setting is currently at 8 degrees. Uh, Then I go up to 12 degrees and then 16 degrees. That's all Celsius. Um, and so uh, starting at the top, you have uh, sparkling wine and high acid whites. And you could really chill those quite a bit. I, I, I do think that, you know, at some point you get too cold and the volatile molecules, the esters, the things that you're experiencing and smelling just don't move as fast when they're cold. And so you eventually won't be able to to experience the full uh, impact of a, a wine or any beverage really or food because it's too cold. And so, so for me, too cold is an issue. Right, mm-hmm. um, but then as you start to work your way up in the spectrum, too warm becomes an issue too. And so, um, you know, the uh, the days of, of leaving your bottle of red wine by the stove to wake it up is is not a thing. Do not do that. Um, I'm you so know. out of fashion, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, for me, um, I know that if something's too cold, it's always going to come up to temperature naturally, and it's going to hit its sweet spot, right? And so, even if something comes out of my my cabinet a little too cold it's gonna get to where it needs to be and that's a lot easier than having to chill it down quickly right and get it back down to where you want it uh and so for me you know as you get into more full-bodied um uh, wines you're gonna be more comfortable with slightly warmer temperatures not warm though right Um, we talk about cellar temp a lot and so cellar temp is just cooler than the kind of ambient temperature in your room think about your cooler you know basement Mm. uh, your cooler cellar and so that's an optimal optimal uh temperature for both the storage uh, but for me also the presentation of a wine i mean most liquids uh are going to taste better being slightly cooler than the ambient temperature of your room and so um for me i would let's say you don't have one of these uh lovely cabinets uh and you just have my old wooden wine rack you're going to take that bottle of red off the rack i'm going to stick it in the refrigerator my, my just kitchen refrigerator for three to five minutes just to drop it below the ambient temperature of the room right And so uh, let's say I have a bottle of sparkling wine that I know I'm going to open later in the day, and I'm going to keep that uh, champagne, let's say, in my regular kitchen refrigerator. It's going to drop down to what? 
three to four to five degrees Celsius, right? Before I'm gonna drink it, I'm gonna take it out and I'm gonna leave it on the countertop. And if I have the patience, I'm not gonna touch it for 10 to 15 minutes because it's gotta get just a little warmer for me to really appreciate all the flavor that it has to offer. Before long, it'll be Christmas. So what are you recommending to our listeners for uh, maybe their Christmas tables? What can you tell us? Yeah, I've, I've started to really uh, spend some time thinking about this because every year we do release a case of, of epic Christmas wines. And we're going to do a six-pack this year. I'm going to release it uh, the first week of November, limited edition. You know, it's only so much of the good stuff to go around. Uh, and so um, for me, I'm thinking about one, the temperature is cooler outside, right? So you really want some some wines that are going to warm you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you could start to push those alcohol levels a little higher, right? <laughs> Which is it's, it's nice, you know. Um, then we're going to think about about the, the kind of flavors and the smells in the air. You're going to think you've got this Christmas pine tree. You've got baking spices. You've got pies in the oven. And so wines that complement those characteristics are, are, are things that I'm going to gravitate to. Those those spicy wines that, that end on a bit of a, a nutmeg, you know, baking spice warming uh, uh, notes are going to be um, things that I, I seek. We also eat a lot of very rich food uh, in the winter. And so you're going to want, you know, rich food to pair. It's all about balance. And so we're going to look to bolder flavors to pair with those bolder dishes. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> You know, with richness comes fat, really. And so you think about those those appetizers, you know, at the start of your Christmas party, everything's just a little bit fried or in that flaky, uh, buttery pastry, right? Mm. And so you really do need acidity for those pairings. The best food pairing wines are ones that have acid. Acid's going to take that fat on your palate. It's going to lift it up. It's going to break it up. It's going to take it down nice. It's going to get you salivating. And that's super important. It's going to get you ready for your next bite, your next sip, so on and so forth. Uh, so, you you know, I'm starting with with my sparkling wines, um, and there's a lot of great value in sparkling wines beyond just champagne. Um, if you, if you don't you know have the the stomach for those those price tags, uh, there are a lot of wines made in other regions, but made the same way that they're made in Champagne, and you get incredible value and flavor there. Um, and then from there, I'm working into fuller-bodied uh, white wines, especially if you're doing um, lighter uh, proteins like turkey or roast chicken, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for your red wines, I, again, I want acidity. So I'm looking, you know, light to medium-bodied red wines with with um, a bit of brightness to them, red fruit characteristics. Think you've got that cranberry sauce on the table, right? Mm-hmm. Let's get some cranberry, some tart uh, red fruit in our wines too. They're going to really complement those dishes well. And if you're going, you know, uh, whole hog or, or, ste- or steak for that matter, uh, you know, you've got bold reds that have that really nice peppery, peppery spice there too. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of sweets. And so sweets tricky, um, you know, and it's a reason that, that, you know, if you go to a French restaurant, your sweet wine is served with your cheese course, right? Not with your dessert because you've already got sweet in the glass or sweet on the plate. You don't need them together. It ends up being too much sweet. And so for me, if it is cheese I, and you do like your, your sweeter wines, I think that's a great opportunity uh, for, from, for some really, really exciting pairings. Uh, but honestly, if you're doing dessert and you still want to keep just drinking dry wines, go back to your bubbles. Go, go to that, that kind of really nice, round, uh, rich, yeasty champagne with your, your apple tart, and, um, and you're going to be a happy person, no doubt about oh, it. It sounds fantastic. It's just lovely, the passion 
with which you describe uh, wine there. You, uh, you clearly love it. And when you're passionate about something, you have the right language for it. And so I want to put this to you. On previous episodes of this show, Dan, we've spoken to uh, acousticians about the sound design of buildings. And they kind of said words to the effect of, if you ask someone to describe the visuals of a building, they can describe it visually beautifully. They, they can describe a hundred different shades of red, for example, you know, or, or whatever it might be. But ask them, what did the building sound like? And they go, um, uh, you know, they, they struggle. Do you find the same happens with describing taste? Sure. It, it, it's tricky. Like I said, you know, tasting is, is not mindless. It is, it's, it's almost a muscle and you have to train that muscle. And so, um, you know, also if you taste a lot, you get palate fatigue. So it gets harder to be that descriptive, you know, that last bottle of red wine at the end of the night, pretty much you ask people, what does it taste like? And they're like, Oh, it tastes like red wine. Be- <laughs> Didn't you have to do a hundred bottles for a competition recently? Oh, a hundred, hundreds on the low side. I've, I've had definitely <laughs> some, some 200 wine plus days, uh, oh but goodness. you are, you're also, you know, you are, you're, you're working with, with snacks throughout to, to cleanse your palate, you know, crackers, bread, things like that. Uh, you're definitely drinking water. You're spitting these wines too. I'm not drinking sure. uh, 200 samples. It's, that's not healthy. Um, you know, and so there's spittoon, you know that's just self-preservation really <laughs> um, but uh, but you get de- you definitely get palate fatigue and it gets harder to uh, to, to describe it um, you know and, and activate that creative side of your brain because ultimately when I write tasting notes which I've written you know um, the majority of the tasting notes on on the website with the um, exception of some from from one of my partners um, you know we're trying to be evocative of emotion we're trying to engage people over uh, this thing that they might not have yet tasted or smelled right and we're trying to have a create a connection with them and connection with their brain that gets them excited to try it really you know um, and so vocabulary is tough and and sometimes it can get too esoteric to the point where it's no longer valuable to the consumer you know uh, mm-hmm. you want to be personal but you don't want to be too personal to you and so you try and work in in universal flavor Right. Um, for for example, you know, in the United States, especially in the Northeast, there's a lot of grape juice that we just drink as children. Right. This this Concord mm-hmm. grape juice, and it's not really an experience that's here in the UK. And so, you know, if I'm speaking to someone in New York, I can reference that that Welch's grape juice experience, and it mm. triggers memory and emotion. Where you know, if you have that same conversation here, you have to come up with a different way to describe it's it. It's called so, Ribena. What's that? Yeah, there you go. Yes. Yep. You're right. <laughs> but I know exactly um, what you mean. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance because, oh, this wine is like, you know, <laughs> walking along a riverbank after the rainfall where the sun is drying the rain off the rocks. And you're like, what? the hell are you talking about but but here's the thing if you if you've you know if you've never walked along a riverbank after the rainfall and the sun's drying the rain off the rocks you're, you're never going to experience that in a wine right your right. vocabulary is you so for me i just try and eat and taste everything and here's the thing i found myself one day walking along a riverbank after the rainfall and the sun was drying the rain off the rocks and i picked one up and i licked it right and and so to to create and it sounds ridiculous I know and it is it is absolutely ridiculous but um, it uh, is is it's again it's creating this palette vocabulary um, you know 
I went to New Zealand. We were tasting Sauvignon Blanc, and uh, the gentleman next to me described it as gooseberry, right? I've never had a gooseberry at that point in my life. I have no idea what he's talking about, right? For me, I smelled a ruby red grapefruit, and I've had that ruby red grapefruit for breakfast hundreds and you know maybe thousands of times over the course of my life and so it's just it's just different experiences it's it's grandma's perfume and uncle johnny's cigar box oh that's a full circle and that's a good place to end so dan i will ask what's the url that listeners can go to to learn more about your company uh, so go to goodwinegoodpeople.com or .co.uk uh, and you'll be right at our homepage there. And uh, I encourage you to explore. It's, it's a really fun site uh, and there's a lot of different avenues you could take to get to, to Good Wine. Well, thank you. We'll do that and we'll allow you now to go and explore the rest of your day. So thank you very much, Dan, for taking the time to join us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Simon. We'll talk again soon.